everyone. Welcome to episode 174 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And we are going to jump right in to talking about our listener top 10 reads of 2022. We had asked everyone to submit their top 10s. Thank you so much to everyone who did. We received over 70 submissions, which came to 427 books total. And Emily has crunched them all into a spreadsheet. And I haven't heard yet what the top 10 are. So I'm super excited about this. Yeah, it was really fun to, I have to admit, I watched the spreadsheet build as people's forms came in. And it was really fun to see what um, came out to be ironically a top 11, which (laughs) made us giggle because it's so hard for us to pick a top 10. But that's because there were some ties there was a three-way tie for 9, 10, and 11. Wow. So, so at 19, the number one read for our listeners this year was Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus, mm. which was also one of my top 10s. And we did our top 10 reads on episode 172. Yeah. If you haven't listened to that. We did that with our buddy Russell from Ink and Paper Blog. Coming in at number two was The Sentence by Louise Erdrich with 13. Lucy by the Sea by Elizabeth Strout with 11, The Swimmers by Julie Otsuka with 9, Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver with 7. And that one had just came out at the end of the year. Yeah, and I've heard mixed things about it, but Mm -hmm. from people I know personally, I've heard more good things about it than not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Remarkably Bright Creatures by Shelby Van Pelt with 7. And that's one that was going on and off my top 10. I loved that book as well. The Lincoln Highway by Amor Tolls, also with seven. You know, what happens with these lists is it's like, oh, I forgot about that book. That's one that I really wanted to read. Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin, also had seven. And then these are the ones that tied in theory 10th. Still Life by Sarah Winman. The Love Songs of W.E.B. Du Bois by Honoré Fannin Jeffers, and Unlikely Animals by Annie Hartnett. Yeah, she wins the award for my favorite book trailer of last year. I don't know if people remember this, but it kind of in our bookish world went viral because she was doing a book trailer right before it came out. And you see this picture of her holding up her book and she goes, what's it about? I don't know. It's a book. It's an effing book. (laughs) And it was just really cute. But that's one I also want to read and didn't get to. So those were the top 10-ish. But then also, the author that got mentioned the most with four different titles was Maggie O'Farrell. Interesting. Yeah. And then there were a slew of authors that got mentioned with three different books. Ann Patchett, Colson Whitehead, Elizabeth Strout, Kate Quinn, Louise Erdrich, Louise Penny, Richard Powers, Stephen King, Taylor Jenkins Reid, and William Kent Kruger. That's fascinating. Yep. Yeah, so the hot writers these days, that's a good indicator of who's being picked up a lot. Yeah, and they're, and people picking up their backlist too, which is always so interesting, right? Because I feel like the top 10 does often end up being books that came out in the current year, mm-hmm. right? But it's interesting to see authors who people are still reading their backlist. I always like to see that. Yeah. And, you know, some people who do their top 10 list only do books that came out that year. 
And then others are just like whatever they read that year. So we didn't ask people to define that at all. Right. To me, it doesn't matter. No, not at all. Yeah. I mean, the whole experience of seeing these lists just always makes you realize like, oh, so many books, so little time. You know, when I saw that our total was 427 books, it's like, holy gracious, that's a lot. (laughs) That is a lot. Last year, Emily put a page up on our bookshop.org page with the listener top 10s of 2021. But this year, we're just going to do the top 11. If you're interested in purchasing any of those, we're affiliates of bookshop.org. And we'd always appreciate your purchases through that. And I do have all of this compiled into a spreadsheet that I'm happy to email people if you are interested in having a reading list for the next 10 years, feel free. (laughs) Um, I'm happy to email it to you as well. And all of those links will be in the show notes. And if you use this information for academic research, just, you know, attribute us. (laughs) Footnote, the book cougars. (laughs) Oh my God, too funny. So um, we wanted to mention our next read along. We know we have some new listeners. We do a quarterly read along each year. And this year, our theme is books about books. So our first pick for quarter one is Parnassus on Wheels by Christopher Morley. Yes, and we are going to be having a Zoom discussion about that on February 26th at 7pm Eastern Time. Email us at bookcougars at gmail.com if you're interested in participating, and then we'll be talking about it on I think it's episode 178. I'm not sure if that's right. That might not be right. It might be 176. On a future episode. Yes, on a future episode. (laughs) And the publisher, Dover, was kind enough to send us an extra copy of the book. So we are going to host a giveaway. Yeah, this is cool. It's two books in one. So it has Parnassus on Wheels and then also The Haunted Bookshop, which was kind of like the follow-up novel to Parnassus on Wheels And Dover is a really great publisher. They do a lot of classics and older books at really great prices. So this is two books in one. To win a copy or to win this copy, you just need to be a newsletter subscriber. You can sign up at bookcougars.com forward slash subscriber. And that too will be in the show notes. We'll also have a discussion thread on Goodreads for the read along. I know some people have already read it. Some people have read it in the past and plan on rereading it. I know Tony mentioned that I read it in the past as well, but really don't remember the details. So you can chime in there anytime. And for those of you who are new listeners, goodreads.com is, we're not affiliates of them. Uh, They're owned by Amazon, just so you know that. But they're a site where you can keep track of what you've read find things to read, connect with friends and see what they're reading. And you can make a group. And so we have a group page for the book Cougars. And there's a discussion thread for each episode that we've ever done. So if you're listening to back episodes, you can go there if you have something to say about a book or anything we've said, feel free to leave comments there and we get notifications. And we also have a thread going for people's reading intentions for 2023. And there has been a lot of action on that thread. It has been so fun to watch. Yeah, we asked, we asked folks, like, what are your reading intentions or goals for the year? Because, you know, a lot of people set these in 2020. Well, they set them the year before, and I tend to wait until January. 
because I know myself and I know that in December, everything seems possible in the new year, you know, and I've often set myself up to fail. So Emily, what are your reading intentions for 2023? Well, I always start with setting my reading challenge on Goodreads. And I set it for 52 books, which seems reasonable to me one book a week. Also, I just like to use the reading challenge because it's a great way for me to track my reading. I register everything that I read there. So even when we're preparing for the podcast, I use it as a resource. What about you? Yeah, 52 books is my numerical goal. You know, I know some people don't like number goals. And um, I don't know, I had always set like 52 as a good number. Like you said, it's one book a week. It seems manageable. It allows me to read really big books because then I can read a shorter book or two in one week down the year. And really, if I don't make the 52, I don't sweat it. Yeah, me either. No, it's just a way to set a goal. I mean, it kind of forces you to pick a number in order Mm -hmm. to have a challenge. Right. You know, and so if you do set a challenge on Goodreads, which you don't have to do, it gives a another little category, a link that you can click that just kind of segregates the books that you've read this year into their own little list. And it makes it really pretty with all the titles. That's what I like too. I mean, all the covers, I should say. Yeah. So that's my easiest first reading intention is I always on January 1 sent my reading challenge on Goodreads. The other one is one that I came up with based on seeing the listener top 10s come in and seeing Maggie O'Farrell as the most mentioned author. I thought, I want to read more Maggie O'Farrell. In classic Emily form, I can't just say that. I want to read all of Maggie O'Farrell. <laughs> so she has nine novels, one memoir, and two children's picture books. Oh. So, And I've only read Hamnet, and then I'm reading something of hers now. Very cool. So are you challenging yourself to read them all this year? I mean, that's what I'm saying. Okay. But who knows? I just want to read all of Maggie O'Farrell. Okay. I'm not suggesting that I have to do it this year, but it's something I want to be thinking about as I'm choosing books this year. But I don't ever want one of my reading intentions to feel like work or something like that. I want it to be enjoyment. Yeah. Well, one of the goals that I have, I joined Adam's challenge. He blogs at Roof Beam Reader. He's done this for, I think it's his 10-year anniversary of doing this challenge. It's the TBR Pile Challenge, where you choose 12 books that have been on your TBR for longer than a year that you want to read in this year. And then you can also have two alternates in case you DNF one of them, which is nice. So I've done this in the past, and I usually fail quite epically, but that's fine. This year, though, the 12 that I've chosen are books I really want to read, I didn't do any shooting on myself Mm -hmm. when it comes to like, you know, you should really read that book already. Mm -hmm. I tried to really look at the ones that I'm excited about. Yeah, that makes total sense. Right now, right? So um, I'm super thrilled. The book I'm currently reading, which I'll talk about in that segment, is one that I think I've owned twice before in the past and never read and just thought I'm not going to get to that. But now here I'm reading it finally and loving it. See, there you go. So good things come out of challenges. Like if I only read that one book, I'm happy. Yeah, good. (laughs) And it's good to do it first thing in the year, right? right? Yes. (laughs) Well, the other thing I want to challenge myself to is to read from one new to me cookbook a month. And I want to cook a recipe from the cookbook also. And I feel like one a month feels very attainable to me. And also gives me an excuse to kind of see what's out there and new in the cookbook realm 
typically I just do that by wandering up and down the cookbook aisle at the library. Mm -hmm. Yeah, more to come on that. Mm, I look forward to that one in more ways than one. Maybe I'll <laughs> score some free meals. <laughs> The only other one I have that's like a specific type thing is the Willa Cather short story project that I've been doing now for a couple of years, just reading one of her short stories a month, because I've always wanted to read all of her short stories, but I don't pick up short stories naturally. You know, it's not my go-to novels or more of my thing. So this is the second to the last year for the challenge. It'll end in 2024. So there are 12 short stories and I read the first one already. So yay. You're doing great on your intentions. Wow, show off. <laughs> <laughs> well, when we did our top 10s, I did shoot on myself because I was like, you have not read much nonfiction this year. I read a lot of memoir, which some people consider to be nonfiction. Mm -hmm. I, you know, it's a form of nonfiction. And I still want to continue to read memoir. I love it. But I want to get back to some more just straight nonfiction, which I've started and have finished one myself this year. Very so that's good. great. Nice. Yeah. And then my only other, I mean, I guess it's an intention. I want to really focus on morning reading. Mm -hmm. Morning reading is when I'm at my best. I want a technology off hour if I can do it in the mornings. So I'm going to really try I'm not going to say that I have to do it every day. But really to remind myself that, you know, that's when I love to read the most. Nice. Yeah, yeah. I love reading in the morning. I know people have said, how do you read so much? Which I mean, compared to other people, <laughs> I don't read that much. <laughs> really look at some of these people on Goodreads. But reading for that hour in the morning, you do that consistently. And the pages really add up. Mm hmm. Yeah, I also do it at four in the morning when I can't sleep. So it depends on what you call morning, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> oh my gosh. I get a lot of middle of the night reading done. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry, but also that's nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at least you have an e-reader. It's not like the old days when you had to light a candle. Right. And, you know, worry about burning the house down because you fall asleep reading with the candle going. Absolutely. We're yes. not that old, but you no. know. Gratitude for my e-reader for sure. <laughs> Well, let me give you some highlights from our listeners who contributed their reading intentions and goals. We had a lot of people who set numerical goals, quite a few 52s, a couple 50s, a couple 40s. I think the highest one that I saw was 200. Um, and the average at this point when I, you know, did the statistics, 75 books a year was the average of book cougar listeners which is cool. Yeah, that's a good number. So a lot of people said that they really want to focus on reading their own books of getting through those physical books, and then also the ebooks that they have waiting for them that they've bought over the years that they really want to get to. And one listener has, I guess on the Kindle app, you can set a goal, which I love that idea, because I often forget about books that are on my Kindle that I want to read. Yeah, me it, too. Yeah. And even once I see them, I'm like, you know, do you want to do the research to see what is this book? Is What's it about? Do I want to read this one? Mm -hmm. It's different than having the physical book to pick up. Right. Yeah. So it might be nice to, to check out an app or whatever e-reader you use if they have some type of way you can set a challenge for yourself in that way. There were some people who had specific goals, like reading the Tournament of Books shortlist, the Feminist Book Club Radical Reading Challenge is another one. The 
own voices. A lot of people, whether it's an official challenge or they want to diversify their reading and make sure that they're reading diversely, own voices came up a lot. There were some people who talked about reading in other languages, which makes me very happy and slightly jealous. Very jealous. Yes. <laughs> um, so the languages that other people have been reading in, uh, Spanish, Italian, German, Portuguese, and then one listener is studying Japanese and hopes to read like a short picture book type thing in Japanese this year. So exciting. You know, it's such a great way to learn a language or to refine your language skills. Mm -hmm. I commend anyone who's doing it. Yeah, me too. I should also mention library thing, which is another site where you can track your reading and make different lists of readings. I'm on there as well. I really enjoy it. I don't utilize it as much as I have wanted to. But library thing is a cool site to check out as well. A couple people also mentioned that they want to read fewer books mm -hmm. than they have in the past, that they want to slow down and really savor the books that they're reading and not feel like they're just chewing through the book after book after book. That's so honorable. Absolutely, it is. It really is. Um, a special shout out to Jolene, who has not listened to audiobooks before and wants to try an audiobook this year. So Jolene, if you want any recommendations for audiobooks, True Grit by Portis is excellent audiobook. It's a Western, but the 13-year-old the protagonist has a great voice. What yeah. would you recommend? That's a good one. I would also say if you are a memoir reader, listening to a memoir, if it's read by the author, can be really great. I loved Crying in H Mart. I think I read that in 2020. Really good one. Yeah, and... um. Jolene also, one of her favorite books of the year already, she read King Solver's Demon Copperhead. So if you like Dickens or any classic or any book, a contemporary book, reading a book and listening at the same time, that might be a good way to get into audiobooks and help keep your focus. Yeah. And then report back. Let us know how it goes. You might become slightly addicted. Yes. I am. I mean, I listen to them when I cook and when I walk. I mean, we talked about that on our audiobook episode. Yeah. And then uh, a shout out, too, to um, Katie and Colleen are reading with a group on Instagram. They're reading the eight novels of Louise Erdrich that are standalones. And if you're interested in connecting with them and reading along, Katie's handle on Instagram would be a good way to get connected. And that is... K-A-T-I-E underscore S-I-K-K-E-S. -K -K -E and I will put that in the show notes as well. Yeah. And that's on Instagram. Yeah. So, I mean, really great inspirational reading intentions. You know, I mean, there are other specific things like one listener is planning a trip, her first trip to New York. So she's going to be reading New York books to prepare for that. Other folks are going to do our read-alongs and then other book clubs that are online and books mentioned on other podcasts. There's just so much out there. It can be overwhelming at times, but I know when I felt overwhelmed, I just try and clean out everything and focus on one thing, mm -hmm. like the read-alongs or a challenge. Libraries often have challenges too. Yep. That could be a good way. And you can even be entered to win like a drawing if they have some type of formal way of tracking people's readings. So thank you so much to everyone. This is an ongoing thing, too, I should say. We've had so far over 60 people 
talk about their intentions and their goals. And this is ongoing. So if you haven't yet and you want to contribute yours and talk with other people, that's the fun part. We think that you get a community of readers right there. Absolutely. And, and we should say thank you also to the people who contributed their top tens. That was really fun as well. Yes, for sure. So Chris, what are you currently reading? I'm currently reading people of the book by Geraldine Brooks. And this is the book that I mentioned that I think I've owned twice in the past and gave away and bought again. And this is a brand new edition um, because her book Horse, which came out last year and was such a strong seller, apparently they've repackaged them. And the cover that I had before was kind of a dark cover with a butterfly wing, which is instrumental in the story. And this one is much brighter. It's like yellow and orange and pink and white. So it really stands out. It's about a rare book, a Haggadah, a Jewish book that was illustrated beautifully at a time when Jewish books weren't illustrated in like the Christian manuscript tradition. So it's a rarity for that. And this book conservator is called to assess the book because it has suddenly reappeared. Things are found in the book. She's analyzing the book. And what Brooks does is she takes the reader back in time to these various points in time and places around the world where things happened with this book. So it's like a really cool historical biography of this book, practically. I'm loving it. Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah, I'm sure I'll talk more about this after I finish it. And uh, she also wrote March which a bunch of us read for our Summer of Little Women a couple years ago. And March was a reimagining or an imagining of the father in Little Women, Mr. March. It would kind of be considered fan fiction, right? You know, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. For sure. Yeah, I was just Mm -hmm. thinking about that because we're going to be talking about a book that handles fan fiction moving forward. Absolutely. So that was People of the Book by Geraldine Brooks. Well, this may come as a surprise to people, but I'm reading a Maggie (laughs) O'Farrell. We're both trying to get in there with our intentions straight away in January. So um, I reached out to a friend that has read a lot of Maggie Farrell and said, where should I start? Because I've only read Hamnet. Her most two recent books were historical fiction, Hamnet and The Marriage Plot, which just came out at the end of last year. But she wrote much more classic straight fiction before. And so I'm reading This Must Be the Place. It's told via multiple character points of view. A little confusing for my brain, because even though it says who the character is in the date, she does a lot of different characters and a lot of back and forth in time. But I'm forging ahead. It's 400 pages. Her writing is beautiful, but it's really dense. You know, it's one of those where like, it takes a while just to read a page. Mm -hmm. But the main protagonist is Daniel Sullivan. And the opening scene is in Ireland, where he comes across a little boy on the side of the road who has quite a speech impediment. And he's trying to help him explain why he's on the side of the road and where's his mother and the story takes off from there. And I'll talk more about it on the next episode. Again, that's called This Must Be the Place by Maggie O'Farrell. So Emily, what have you just read? Well, I finished Rough Sleepers by Tracy Kidder. The full title on that is Rough Sleepers, Dr. Jim O'Connell's Urgent Mission to Bring Healing to Homeless People. 
I ended up consuming it both via audio and print. And Tracy Kidder does narrate the audio and he did a really good job. This is my first nonfiction of the year. I'm very proud of myself. It's about Dr. Jim O'Connell, who has made it his life's work to bring medical care to the homeless community in the Boston area. Tracy Kidder follows Dr. Jim's journey, but he also kind of brings in some of the patients who they become very attached to and tells some of their story, which really humanizes the experience of a homeless person. What he really is trying to point out in the book is not only Dr. Jim and what makes him successful and his group successful at the job that they're doing, but also pointing out that in order to handle this problem, it involves housing, our prison systems, our healthcare system, Medicaid, everything. And they can't do it all just with medicine, of course. It was really it was just a great book. And I feel like I've done some work in my work life around the homeless community. So I understand some things. But as with most things, if you hear stories, and it humanizes an experience, you understand the problem a little bit more. And I feel like Tracy Kidder did a really good job of that. I cannot recommend this book highly enough. And I think the experience of listening to it was really good as well. So if you're a straight audiobook listener, this is a good one, but I did enjoy consuming it both ways. And I will talk more about it because I got to see him and went on a biblio adventure. So again, that's called Rough Sleepers by Tracy Kidder, and it is out now. Well, I finished How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America by Clint Smith. And this was a big book on a lot of people's list in 2021. It's out in paperback now. And I so enjoyed this. I listened to it on audio. So it's kind of like a part memoir, travelogue, historical accounts. I wouldn't say exactly oral history, but he interviews people. He talks with people when he's at these different historic sites. So some of the places that he visits are Monticello Plantation, the Whitney Plantation, Angola Prison, Blandford Cemetery, Galveston Island, New York City, Gory Island, and he is from New Orleans originally and talks about how, you know, he grew up and didn't notice how much symbols of slavery were all around. So this sparks him to go and visit these places and try and understand what is the connection to slavery? How is slavery being discussed at these historic places where docents are giving tours of the place? And he talks with other visitors who are there who are willing to talk with him. And it's not always comfortable for him or for the other people or for the reader. And I really admire what he's done because it is such a important subject. We have to just stop denying that the colonies were founded on slavery and how much, as he says, we need to reckon with that. Mm -hmm. So I highly recommend this. Again, that was How the Word is Passed, Clint Smith. I also finished an audiobook called A Heart That Works by Rob Delaney. I knew Rob Delaney as a comedian who starred in a show that I loved called Catastrophe. 
Mm. Very funny man. I think he was an early adopter to Twitter. And I'm sure comedians, just like authors, do really well with 140 characters. So I think he has quite a following on Twitter. He is also the father of four boys. And his third boy, Henry, sadly had brain cancer, a very fast moving traumatic form that he got when he wasn't even one years old. And he ends up dying. I remember in I think the third season of Catastrophe that they were starting to film it and it came out on the entertainment wires that his son had died. And I thought, oh, what a terrible tragedy. And didn't, you know, think much more of it except how hard it would be to be appearing in a comedy when you had this tragedy going on in your life. But I also think I thought, oh, this must have been something that happened really quickly and his son died. But what he does in this memoir, which is only about three and a half hours long, it's a very short book, is talk about the whole process of being a parent and the tragedy of it and also the beauty of it and having this relationship with his son that he adored for the time that he was alive. He happens to live in London. He's an American. But he also just talks about the healthcare system and the difference between the healthcare system there and the healthcare system here in the States. And he's hilarious, as you might imagine. You know, he's a comedian. So it's also interesting to be reading and hearing about such a tragic story, but also he peppers it with just tremendous humor. I really enjoyed it. He narrates, again, that's called A Heart That Works by Rob Delaney. Well, I haven't heard of that show. Oh, my gosh. It was so funny. I think there were three seasons. The premise of it is this American guy is over in London for a very short visit and has a hot and heavy relationship with a woman that he meets, and she gets pregnant. And so he ends up moving there. (laughs) They get married. They have these kids. And he's just, they're both hilarious. The, The actresses. Sharon Horgan, I think is her name. She's now starring in the show Bad Sisters, which if you haven't watched is hilarious. I just binged that myself recently. But it's very funny because it's just he's hilarious, but also just how hard it is to get into a relationship with someone and have a child when that wasn't necessarily your intention, but you're trying to do, quote, the right thing. Mm -hmm. So a very funny look at marriage and raising children. Well, the last book I read... The second book I read, I should say, (laughs) as if I've read a whole bunch lately, um, was one that we both read, John Steinbeck's The Winter of Our Discontent. We read this for the Vintage Book Club. Yes, we met up at the Wood Memorial Library and Museum up in South Windsor is where we meet. That's a quarterly book club that meets only in person. And we've been reading John Steinbeck. And this book, it was his last published novel. And I loved it. It's set in New England, also his only novel set in New England. And it's about a man who is from a very old New England family that has fallen on financial hardship. He's a very upstanding, do the right thing kind of guy. He was soldier in World War II. He's home now for probably like, what, 10 years or so, maybe a little bit longer than that. Yeah, because it's 1959, I think, right? Yeah, and his kids are teenagers. Right, yeah. yeah. So anyway, doesn't matter how old the kids are, other than that they're teenagers and they have needs, right. you know? And his wife kind of wants to hold her head a little bit higher, and she's a little 
upset that he is now the clerk in the grocery store that he used to own. So the story takes place between Easter and it ends on the 4th of July. Mm -hmm. I thought it was really funny and there's a lot of history in it, which I think is what made me like it so much more than perhaps other people in the group enjoyed it. It made me think a bit about Hawthorne and just the old New England family and coming down in the world. And still living in the community where you had a different standing. Right. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's classic Steinbeck, though, in a lot of ways, because it does have this good man, and then it has not so good men, and then it has a woman who's a whore with a heart of gold type of character, who's a little bit more fleshed out, though, than a lot of his female characters, I think. Yeah, and and we talked about that when he wrote this, he was on his third marriage, which was a happy marriage, unlike East of Eden, where he had been what he saw as wronged by his wife, and his bitterness came out in the writing of East of Eden. So the winter of our discontent is a Shakespeare quote, and now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by this son of York. I think my absolute favorite musical is Something's Rotten. It's a comedy about Shakespeare, actually about these two brothers, the bottom brothers, who are trying to write something great, but Shakespeare's all the rage. It's a great musical, though, for book nerds, because there are so many literary references. They use that now as the winter of our discontent. And one of the songs, like it's kind of like a rock song that Shakespeare sings. So funny. I'm really glad we chose this one. I really enjoyed it. It had quite a twist that I kind of gasped when I got to that part. And the gentleman caller turned and looked at me and I said, this book just took a turn. I was so surprised. I did not see it coming. So I really enjoyed it as well. I was I was surprised by it in mm-hmm. a good way. Yeah, same here. And it's one of those books, like there's so much packed into it, so many literary references and biblical references and historical things that I think it's a book you could read again and again Mm -hmm. and still keep picking up on different things. Yeah, I was just reading, actually, there was a theme when Ethan Allen Hawley, who is the main character, would walk to work. He'd walk to the store where he was a clerk and he'd walk other people, you know, as happens, you know, everyone's going to work at the same time. He'd walk with some other people And there's a part where they're walking and they don't want to step on a crack and break their mother's back. And I was like, why does he keep bringing that up? I mean, he brought it up two or three times. And so I read about that, like, what is the reference? And it's actually a reference to slavery. Or I shouldn't say a reference, it stems from that. Wow. And so I thought, oh, that really got me thinking, you know, what is Steinbeck trying to do here? And I think you're right. Like, if you really wanted to read this as an academic and understand its place and time and what he was trying to do. There's a lot more there. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the banker, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Who does that? And it's really interesting because these families go back in time. So the banker who was Holly's dad's age and the banker had been an advisor for his father. So both of these families go back to the beginning of the colony So there's a lot of baggage there. Mm -hmm. And this whole superstition of stepping on a crack. I mean, I used to, I mean, we did that when I was a kid all the time. All the time. It was a sing song thing. Yeah. Yeah. So it made me wonder, like, what is going on here? Mm -hmm. And I don't know if he was alluding to the older significance to that, or if it was something more of its time. Mm -hmm. I don't know. 
yeah interesting yeah because so many things are not what they seem yep even the historical record and family lore Mm -hmm. i think it's a great book and i had read that it didn't get good reception but i peeked around on newspapers.com and looked at old reviews from around the country and most of the papers around the country ran reviews and they were really positive for the Mm -hmm. most part I think it was just one reviewer for the New York Times. He was also Hemingway's biographer, Mm. and he didn't give it a good review. Maybe that's because he burned Hemingway in the book. Yeah, he does. There's a line (laughs) in this book. So Ethan is talking with Margie, one of the characters, and they're talking. He says, you know, ever seen a bullfight, Ethan? And she says, my second husband used to take me. He loved them. I think bullfights are for men who aren't very brave and wish they were, (laughs) which I heard on the side, like burn towards Hemingway because, you know, he loved bullfights so much. So that might be the deeper root of that review from the New York Times. Yes. Is it Carlos Baker? That might be the critic's name. I'll have to look that up and I can mention it on the next episode because I remember my mom reading that biography just around the time I had asked her for some recommendations on what to read. And she's like, well, try Hemingway. I think you'd like a farewell to arms, which I did. And I still love that novel. I've read it a bunch of times and really like it. And I like other Hemingway novels. But she was reading that, um, well, we got into a little Hemingway click together. And she was reading the biography then. And she finished it. I was like, well, what'd you think? She's like, well, you know, I don't really think he liked Hemingway all that much. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm not really sure, you know. I mean, literary critics and biographers don't always necessarily like their subjects or, you know, I didn't read that biography. So I'm not sure how my mm-hmm. mom read yeah. it or what her expectations were for the biography. Interesting. Yeah. Winter of our discontent, John Steinbeck. Recommend. To pause up. So should we talk about our Biblio adventures? Yes. Oh my gosh. We went to Boston and had such a great day. It was such a great day. I mean, we are lucky we can drive into Boston and spend a day and then drive home, which is exactly what we did. Yes. And the traffic gods were with us. It was smooth sailing there and back, which was really lovely. And our first stop was Brattle Books, which is a used bookstore that I've wanted to go to since forever ago. It was great to finally make it there. They're an old store, you know, antiquarian and used. So they have their building, which is a three story building. And then next to it, there's like an empty lot that's asphalt. But in nice weather, they have book carts out there with like, you know, dollar carts and sale carts and stuff. We were there and it was a rainy day. So the carts weren't out. But they have this cool, huge pencil above the door that spans the length of the building, which I love pencils. So that was so much fun to see in real life. And then on their sign, they have like a writing quill and a little ink bottle, which is also really a nice nod. That's really the reason Chris wanted to go. Totally. Totally. (laughs) So if you check out our social media, we do have pictures of us standing under the pencil. And then it's really well organized when you get inside. So the first and second floor They're used books, but they're not so rare. The rare books were on the third floor. Right. Yeah. And they had some wonderful things up there. And they were really accessible. I was shocked. I mean, there were some things behind a glass case or two, but we could really touch these books and pull them off the shelf. Yes. I couldn't believe it. 
Well, and I have a feeling that maybe some of the rarest of the rare might not even be at that site. Mm. That, you know, yeah, it was really wonderful to be able to handle the books in that way. Yeah, and see them. I learned something in one of my classes already. I always thought that when you opened a book and the the leaves were still connected at the top, that those were considered uncut. But they're actually the technical term is unopened because the term uncut is something that binders do to cut the edges of the book so you don't have that deckled edge. Anyway, that was fun to see and to handle. Yeah, it was this little tiny book that I just happened to pull off the shelf because I saw Willa Cather and pulled Chris's elbow and said, you must look at this book. (laughs) (laughs) But I will say one of the things, I mean, it was very crowded and the aisles were kind of close together and the shelves are really tall. And people might not remember this, but Chris and I are not really tall. And so when we got down to the first floor and we were in the fiction section, I mean, right away, I was like, well, half of these we're not going to be able to look at because we can't reach them anyway. But then you're looking through and you discover that there's this metal shelf with a row of books you're looking at. And then you pull a book out to discover there's a whole row of books behind it. Yes, I kind of heard horror music the first (laughs) book. And then I was like, oh, Emily, you're just not going to see all the books. It's okay. Yeah. But it was really fun, and we came out with a few little gems. So totally, that was stop yeah. number one. Stop number one. And this was on a Saturday, and you know we both usually have the luxury of making our own work schedule. So we often do Biblio Adventures during the week, and this is a Saturday. So we're not used to like the amount of people in bookstores on Saturdays. Um, but we walked over to the next bookstore, which is Beacon Hill Books and Cafe which is a newer bookstore in Boston. Gorgeous. Oh my God, so beautiful. It's in kind of what I would call a multi-floored brownstone that has this tiny little staircase that you can walk up and up and up. Also an elevator, which I was shocked to see. Yeah, an elevator in there. Yeah, it's a very historic district, Beacon Hill. So old buildings that are narrow and the place was packed to the point where like, It was hard to move around and it was hard to browse, but so much fun to be in there. They, in the kids section, which I believe was on the third floor. Yes. I think so. When you first get up there, so we took the elevator going up because the stairs were just really tight and full of people. (laughs) And uh, when you first walk out of the elevator to the right, there's this big red button. And if you press that button, there's a train that runs around the top perimeter of the kids section which is so much fun. So hit that red button. Yes. And I thought there was a little kid who was like wanting to push me out of the way because we were getting off the elevator and I thought she was running over to push the elevator button. Right. But then came to find that it was for that. And then they also have this little tiny door, like a kid sized door. That was really cute. And they had tons of beautiful little dog bookends. Yes. Those really lovely cast iron bookends that were painted terriers and and other types of dogs really lovely they also then in the fiction section the adult section they had a persephone section which i've i don't recall ever seeing in a store yeah yeah. around here have you no yeah Mm -mm. yeah beautiful store and then on the first floor almost felt like a basement there was a beautiful cafe it was kind of between lunch and dinner. They were only serving coffee and tea. We were starving. And it also didn't have any seats. Right. So it gives us a reason to have to go back. And it's really neat because you can walk through 
the front door of the store and you go up the steps to get up there to the book store. But then you can access the cafe from the stairs inside the shop. But outside, there's a little doorway that you, I mean, it's our size, right? Like you can tell it's it's old. Like other people would have to duck to get into that arch to then go to the cafe, which also has a little outside seating area and a little courtyard, which is adorable. So I look forward to going back on a weekday when it might not be so crowded so we can sample the cafe. Yes, indeed. Yeah. And then the third bookstore we went to was called Commonwealth Books, another used bookstore. Yes, and that was so much fun. And on the walk there, we ran into the old corner bookstore. Oh, right. Which is a historic literary landmark that um, has been around for a long, long time. It was actually on the side of Anne Hutchinson's house, and there was a fire that burnt it down. So this has always been a retail space. It was first open, the building as it currently is, as an apothecary, and the man lived upstairs. And then Ticknor and Fields had their publishing house in there, and they're known for publishing Nathaniel Hawthorne and Longfellow and Stowe and just all these really famous people. So that was really exciting to see in real life because I'd only seen pictures of it. It's a Chipotle now. It is a Chipotle now, which (laughs) I remember when I first was hearing about this, people were horrified that Chipotle was moving in and that it wasn't going to be a literary space. But it's always been a retail space. I know a bookstore would be a retail space, but, you know. Buy a burrito and read a book. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, who knows what the future holds for that? You never know. Like Chipotle's lease could run out and... You know, it could be future book cougars headquarters if we decide to move to Boston, right? You I'm heard sh- it here first. I'm sure we could afford the rent. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just glad they didn't tear it down and put some, you know, modern building up. It's, I know. It's really cool to see an old building repurposed, just like Beacon Hill Bookstore, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, same with libraries, you mm-hmm. know, old libraries that close because a new, bigger library opened. It's really great to see them remodeled as apartments or right. restaurants. Anyway, Commonwealth Books is just down the street in this really cool little like breezeway alley. Yeah, we had a hard time finding it. Our GPS was like, you're there, you're there. And we're wandering around like, no, we're not. It was down a little alley. Very cool. Yeah, and it was dark by that time and rainy and it's all brick streets and everything. So we almost felt like we were back in time. Yes. A bit. <laughs> um, but had a really wonderful browse in that shop as well. Yeah. That one um, also had some rare books, but I mostly browsed the fiction there myself. So, yeah, yeah, it was a great day. It really was. I could have kept on walking forever. Mm-hmm. And and that's really a neat thing about Boston is it's a nice walking city. It really is. We got to walk to get from Brattle Books to Beacon Hill. We walked through the green mm-hmm. or the commons is what they call it there. And the new MLK sculpture had just opened. It's called The Embrace. So it was pretty crowded. We didn't go over to it, but we got to see it from a distance. Mm -hmm. And walking the commons is really cool. There's a lot of history in Boston. You can't get a block without seeing a plaque or a statue or something of interest. Right. Yeah. So loved it, though. What a great Great day. day. Yeah. And it snowed, it did which snow. is a lovely thing because we haven't had much snow here on the Connecticut shoreline this season so far. So it was nice to walk around in the snow. It was. And they still had some holiday lights up in certain places, which was fun. So It was a very New England kind of day. Mm-hmm. And then two days later, I got in the car 
and did a biblio adventure all by myself, which I have to say was fun, but never as much fun. And also kind of like a drag because Chris and I have it worked out really well that she drives and I navigate and I had to do everything by myself, <laughs> but I managed and I went up to Northampton, Mass and um, had a quick browse in Raven Books, which is a really cool used bookstore, highly recommend. And then I went over to a local church to see Tracy Kidder in conversation with Dr. Jim O'Connell, which was really cool. I mean, to see Tracy Kidder, first of all, who is a nonfiction writer that I really admire, but to hear him talking to the person he was writing about, really amazing. So I'm just going to set the stage for you that when I walked in, I could see these two chairs and microphones. And there was no one sitting in the front row on one side. And so I decided I was just going to sit in the front row because I'm highly distractible if I don't. And also I did it for the people because I needed to get pictures for book cougars. (laughs) So I'm sitting there and a nice gentleman comes up and says, you know, are these seats reserved? And I said, I don't think so. I just sat down. So he sits down and starts talking to me. It turns out he's very involved in the homeless communities as a doctor himself in the Boston area. And then it's starting to fill up, starting to fill up. And then the bookseller taps me on the shoulder and says, is anyone sitting in this seat next to you? And it was between me and this gentleman. And I said, no. And she said, would it be okay if Tracy Kidder's wife sits here? Uh I was like, sure. (laughs) And so I scooch over and she comes and sits down. And I just felt so honored to be sitting next to her. And we chatted just a little bit. He had had an event the day before in Cambridge. So that was interesting. Really nice woman. It was nice to meet her. And then on my drive home, I was listening to the book and he talks about his wife, Fran. And I was like, I know Fran. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, they had a great conversation. Both of them are just really lovely. One of the things that Tracy Kidder said that I thought was so interesting is I've mentioned that he wrote the book Mountains Beyond Mountains, which was about Paul Farmer, who was also a doctor, also from the Boston area. And so when it came time for questions from the audience, a gentleman said, you know, can you describe anything different or the same or interesting about having now had the chance to follow these two doctors? And Tracy Kidder kind of laughed and he said, well, I'm going to be honest, Paul Farmer wasn't the easiest person, a wonderful man, not the easiest person. And he said, I'll just tell you the easiest way to explain it is Paul Farmer loved to be called a saint. He loved nothing more. Mm. Dr. O'Connell, if you call him a saint, he just fades. He cannot stand it if you call him a saint. Interesting. Yeah. (laughs) Which he says, unfortunately, (laughs) but he said, unfortunately, it also makes people want to kind of raise you into sainthood even more. But it was a great conversation. And one of the real takeaways for me that was interesting was Dr. O'Connell talked about how what he's really learned over these years since 1985 is that the system of medicine for homeless people is much different than how it has turned out to be for those of us who go into our regular doctor's office, which is super quick, super fast. You don't take much time. That's just the way the system has been set up for those doctors. Whereas what he's learned is if you're not going to take the time to talk to someone who's experiencing homelessness and getting to know them and understanding their story, they're never going to seek health care. And I just thought that was so interesting. And he said, that's the way they learned. You know, you just 
have to understand who they are, what they need, and work within their own story. And the book really talks about that and helps you understand some of these stories and why they end up a lot of times having problems. Having permanent housing has to do with these systems that we have in place in our country. So I could keep talking. I won't. It was a great evening. If you get a chance, he is on book tour. If you get a chance to see him, highly recommend. And once again, I will say Rough Sleepers is a great read. Thank you for indulging me. Oh, my gosh. Well, of course, and congratulations on your first nonfiction book of the year. Thank you. Good job. And now the reason I didn't get to go with Emily was because my classes started. It's another semester. I believe it's going to be my last semester. Knock on wood. That all goes well. (laughs) I can't believe how time has flown by. But I thought I'd just tell everybody what classes I'm taking since I've done that in the past. My Wednesday night class is subject cataloging and classification. So librarians and cataloging go hand in hand. And so subject cataloging is all about figuring out like the aboutness of an item, which I love. I'm fascinated by it because, you know, how often have you done a search on a computer at the library and you get these search results and, you know, there's something really odd in there. Now, could it be tangentially related to your search? Maybe. But it could also just be that somebody didn't catalog that item properly. So the importance of cataloging is you can have all these cool books and all these great resources, but if somebody can't find it because it's not properly cataloged, you might as well not even have it, Mm -hmm. right? And then the other class I'm taking is the history of the book, which when I first looked through the catalog, I thought, oh my God, I hope I can take that class because it sounds fantastic. And so... Here I am, my last semester. I'm so happy to be taking this class. There are two books in this class that were required. One is The Dictionary of the Book, a glossary for book collectors, booksellers, librarians, and others. And it's by Sidney E. Berger. This is a really cool book, and that's where I learned the whole thing about a book being uncut versus unopened. And it's a, this is a pricey book. It's over 100 bucks. Yeah, we're going to take a picture of that because it is beautiful. And then the other book is called The Book by Amaranth Borsuk. It's part of the MIT Press Essential Knowledge Series. And these are small books. The other book is a huge oversized book. It's like an 8 by 10, 11 book. And the other book, The Book, is this small paperback that you can easily put in a purse And it is about the book, the book as object, as content, as idea, as interface. This is not so expensive. It's only $16.95 in the United (laughs) States. But this whole series, when Emily and I went on a biblio adventure to Kent, to the bookstore there, they had this whole series. And I almost bought this book then, but I didn't. So now I have it in my hot little hands. It was calling to you back then. Yes. So super excited about the semester. Yeah. But she missed the Biblio Adventure. I did. I'm not bitter. We'll just have to (laughs) contact stores and say no events on Wednesday evening. That's right. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. (laughs) So upcoming jaunts. I'm really excited because our buddy Will Schwabe has a new book coming out. It's called We Should Not Be Friends. And it's about his friendship with Maxie, who was a Navy SEAL he met in Yale via a secret society. Pretty cool. 
Totally. And he's going to be at RJ Julia here in Madison on February 21st at 7 p.m. Nice. I look forward to that. Yeah, I'm really hoping to catch that one. And then also um, Laura Zygman, the author of Small World, is on book tour, and I'm hoping to catch her somewhere. I haven't figured out where yet. Very cool. (laughs) Nice. Well, what about upcoming reads? Oh, my gosh. I am so lucky and so excited Thank you to Agate Publishers, who sent me a copy of Fieldwork, a forager's memoir by Ileana Regan. I love her. She's a very revered chef, and she used to own and run a restaurant, closed it down, moved to the UP in Michigan, opened a B&B where she literally forages for food and cooks people incredible meals. Mm. And that's what this book is about. And then I Am, I Am, I Am by Maggie O'Farrell. That's her memoir, and I have it all queued up as both audiobook and print. Nice. How about you? Well, I have a wonderful book. These are two arcs, actually, two. The first one is the second book in Amy Tector's Dominion Archives mystery series. I read the first one, The Fallest Things, not too long ago. And this new one that's coming out in March, Speak for the Dead, takes place 10 years after what happened in The Fallest Things. And that's when the archivist finds some letters tucked into books that tell a story kind of within the story. And then the other book is called End Papers by Jennifer Saverin Kelly. And this is a debut novel. Kelly is a bookbinder herself. This is her bio. She lives in Ithaca, New York, where she writes, binds books, and works as a production editor at Cornell University. And End Papers is her first book, and it is about a bookbinder who finds a mysterious hidden letter. She's actually a genderqueer book conservator. So I'm super excited about this one. This one comes out February 7th. So I'm probably going to read End Papers first. And then the March book. I got book on the brain, apparently. Like, (laughs) who doesn't, right? Right. In the out now category, I just mentioned this book, Small World by Laura Zygman, Decent People by Deshaun Charles Winslow. That's getting really good reviews. That's one of the books that Russell talked about being super excited about. Georgie All Along by Kate Claiborne. Exiles by Jane Harper. I know Chris has her paws on a copy of that book. Moonrise Over New Jessup by Jamila Minix. So these are all books we've mentioned on prior episodes, but they are all available for your reading pleasure now. Coming up next, we are so excited to introduce you to Jenna Miller, the author of Out of Character. This is a new YA novel that we both love so much. It's about a queer body positive love story takes place in high school age, applying for colleges and all that good stuff. Yeah. But it's just a heartwarming story with, I think, realistic characters. Mm -hmm. You know, the classic angst of high school, when you are trying to get through high school, and you're kind of done with it. You're done with the people you're going to high school with some of them, but then you're also learning new things about them, applying to college. And also starting to individuate from your parents. It's got everything. And your parents are doing dumb things. Yeah. You know, Um, (laughs) so but the parents are treated really well, too, for the Mm -hmm. most part. I mean, this is really a warm romance. 
and I loved it. It was so healing for my old lesbian heart to just read a book about a girl in high school who's queer, who's accepted by her family, surround friends. Yeah, friends of, you know, and it's just so lovely. Yeah. I want this book to be a bestseller. So pre-order it, get it from your library or contact your library, ask them to get it. Because I think these stories are so important for young people to read and to know that if they're different, they can have still a great life. Tell your school libraries about this book. We also want to acknowledge that this is a book that's printed by HarperCollins. There is currently a strike going on with the employee union of HarperCollins. Yeah, we're recording this on January 25th, and they're like in their 50-something day of the strike. And, you know, we just want to acknowledge that because we support unions, but we also support authors. I know some people are talking online about not reviewing books by HarperCollins authors, but we want to support authors because we know how hard they work and how hard it is for new voices and queer voices to be heard. And debut authors. So let's buy this book, everybody. Yeah. Out of Character by Jenna Miller. Enjoy our conversation. We sure did. We are so thrilled to introduce debut novelist Jenna Miller to the Book Cougars community. Jenna writes young adult books about fat, queer, nerdy girls who deserve to be seen and have their voices heard. Her first novel, Out of Character, is being published by Quiltree Books, an imprint of HarperCollins Publishers. It'll be out in North America and Australia on February 7th and in the UK on February 16th. So pre-order now and ask your library to get a copy. Out of Character has been described as Dumplin' Meets Geekerella. Emily read it, and I'm currently reading it. We both love the warm, realistic characters in this queer, fat-positive YA romance, and we think you will, too. Welcome, Jenna. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Jenna, congratulations on your debut novel. I really loved it. Can you give the listeners just a little, kind of like your elevator pitch? What's this novel about? Out of Character is about a high school senior named Cass who has an online role-playing addiction and no one in her personal life knows about it. So she's juggling that on top of her grades not being great because of it and she's dealing with some family issues. Um, It's not really a spoiler, it's in the intro of the book, but she has to deal with her mom leaving her and her dad early on in the book. So that's going on and then She has a girlfriend in her life who kind of enters the picture then too. So not a great time to start dating someone else, but you know, it it is what it is. It's high school. It's messy. You can't control it. Uh, So she's just kind of juggling all these things at once. And then throughout that, she's also getting closer to her friends online and eventually meets her best friend in person and things get a little complicated. Online, like we were just talking before we started recording um, that Jen and I, have known each other online for what 15 years maybe yeah 10 15 probably yeah um and you know through the writing community and the book blogging community and things like that and so how cool is it to be sitting here now you know e-meeting um as yeah <laughs> John the book maniac has called it and and then emily and i met because of a podcast so mm-hmm. the three of us together are you know living proof of online connections, which mm-hmm. for my generation is still something that kind of worries people. 
Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I imagine parents today still do worry about that as well. And I just love the way you handled the age differences or like, you know, Cass's situation with being online and then the parents attitude, which is twisty and -hmm. very cool. So, you know, it was interesting for me to as I was reading your book, I was thinking about Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. which when I was a kid growing up, my brother was really into that. And he would host these like 24 hour parties where they would mm-hmm. throw dice and create stories. And I never really got into it and I didn't understand it a hundred percent, but I think of role-playing online role-playing is now kind of the similar idea of that, mm-hmm. but I didn't understand what it was, even what fan fiction morphing into role-playing is. So could you just describe that? Yeah, of course. So, and even in the book, it's like her trying to explain what fan fiction is, and she just gets a multitude of responses. Like, even her dad, who we call Cool Dad, is like, oh, I know what fan fiction is. Even though he's like this, you know, middle-aged doctor, he's not in the internet world at all. He's like, I know what that is. I'm cool. Um, But yeah, so role-playing is like fan fiction. So if you know what fan fiction is, you have a, you know, a step up. But it's essentially that, but you're role-playing with someone else. So you're writing a story together by going back and forth in different scenes. So you play a character, person B plays a character, and you can do this through like an already created fandom, or you can just be like, hey, let's make up people living in New York City, and they all live in the same neighborhood. Um, And it's not based on anything. It's just you creating people and making scenes together. That's kind of how it started. When I was in high school, I started role playing and I did become addicted to it. So, you know, it's a little inspirational, um, but very different, of course, from my own life outside of that. So I got into it. I will age myself. I got into it in 2005 uh, when I was in high school. I got an ad on my Zanga site to join a role play and we role played on AOL Instant Messenger. So another dated platform. So then when I wrote the book, I had to modernize it to like discord and tumblr and like stuff like that but the kind of basics of it i didn't really change much because i think kids are still like role-playing pretty similarly it's just the platforms that have changed right yeah so one of the things that's really poignant about the book i think is pointing out that even though these folks that you're role-playing with online you don't you haven't met them but for some reason there's like a safety that you feel about telling them what your problems are and Mm -hmm. they become really close friends and I don't know if you want to answer this you know as your own personal experience or as Cass who's the protagonist in the story her experience Mm -hmm. do you want to talk about why you think that that happens that you can develop these really close relationships with people you've never met? Yeah, um, I can speak to myself first. So I mean, when I was getting online, it was still kind of a weird space. You know, it it was very stranger danger. Like it was before social media really kicked off. So you didn't have profiles and images. It was just people talking to each other. You know, my friends and I kind of based it like, who's going to spend time role playing to like, be a weirdo, I guess. (laughs) Like these. So it's like you felt a little safe because that would be quite a long game and I think I even make a joke about it in the book at some point like that would be a really long game to play to like not be who you say you are but for us I think and I should also say when I started role playing you couldn't just role play on your phone quickly and then go back to what you were doing like you were online like you were at your computer at a desk or wherever you sit with your computer and you would just role play for hours and then you would also at least be my friends we'd be on the phone 
while we're role playing for like six hours straight, middle of the night, like truly chaotic. But you know, you're teenagers. What does it matter? You don't have real life to worry about yet, just chaos. So for me, I think we just bonded so fast because we were all so into it. And then it wasn't, we weren't just role playing, we were also like getting to know each other. And that kind of trickles into cast where she can at least like send a quick response and go back to watching her best friend play football or whatever she's doing that day. And that's nice. But then they also have a group chat where they're just constantly going, like they talk in there every day. And I think it's just so easy to bond with people because they have this like different look of your life. And like you can talk about your life, but you're not having to then go to school together and deal with school drama. It's just you're you're kind of info dumping on each other and then just being there for each other. And I think that's really cool because you're not like also worrying about every other aspect of like high school or whatever. So you're able to just connect on whatever level you want to. So a lot of those barriers are gone. Yeah, there's more control around it and less of the high school angst, I think. Right. <laughs> yes. Um, right. Mm-hmm. Potentially less triangulation, although that can yes. happen as well. And it, it kind of does. I really appreciated the settings. So it's Minneapolis and Chicago. Mm-hmm. And was that important for you to to set them in those two locations? Or did they just happen to be areas that you are familiar with or that were close together on the map because there is some travel happening? Bit of both. I moved to Minneapolis about five years ago and I absolutely love it here. I only moved from a few hours away, so I'd I'd been familiar with it before that. Um, But I'd been here a couple of years when I started writing out of character. So I just wanted like a little love letter to Minneapolis without it, you know, being the entire aspect of the book, but it is very important to the book. And then Chicago was both distance and then also kind of a personal nod. Um, the first friends I met from role playing, we met in Chicago. We went to go see this really niche nerdy musical together. And then the next year we met up with a larger group of role play friends who we just kind of met more recently. And I mean, I'm friends with most of them still today. And one of them's my best friend. And so it was really just like a nod and a love letter to that as well. And I, I love Chicago. So <laughs> that's a perk. Cool. Yeah. I enjoyed that. So, you know, we recently talked to um, Melinda Lowe. She was on a couple episodes ago um, last mm-hmm. year. And she talked about trying to get Queer YA published mm-hmm. years ago. I think, what was it, 2012, maybe the first time? And she, you know, she got pushed back on it. One of the questions we were wondering, you know, with you, your contract you signed like just a couple of years ago, or the book deal, I should say, did you have any difficult conversations with editors or publishers about any type of content? I didn't really have any pushback. Most of the feedback I received from like agents or editors was just like, oh, you know, not the right voice, but they had queer books on their like wish list. So like they wanted them. And I, I think I only really queried and went on submission to people who were open to that. So I think back then it was like Simon versus the Homo Sapiens Agenda and maybe five other books. And they were probably primarily like coming out stories or trauma stories. Because I feel like whenever there's a marginalization, it, it seems to start there, right? It starts with like the gripping story, the emotional journey, and then it kind of gets to move into these, like, I don't want to say lighter because there are still tough topics, but it's not the entire plot that you're dealing with, like a trauma of your, you know, your identity or your race. It's just, hey, this is who I am, but also I'm a chaotic mess. So let's talk about that. But I feel like it's a lot more open now. I think there's a lot more room for queer joy than there was, you know, 
10 years ago or whatever it was. I personally didn't have any issues, at least as far as I read between the lines. I didn't really see anything that seemed suspicious in that way. So I think we've come a long way in that area. It's great to hear. Yeah, and I think even the way that the, you have your characters react to both queerness and fatness are mm-hmm. really wonderful. I mean, it just seemed natural, and mm-hmm. I really appreciated that. Thank and, you. Um, and I loved how you described Cass as an out queer girl who doesn't hate her body. Mm-hmm. How refreshing is that? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and with that, I mean, when I was young, that was not the case. I mean, part of it's, you know, the world we lived in in the 90s and 2000s versus now. But I mean, I wasn't really comfortable with myself until I was probably early 30s, which isn't really that long. Now I'm in my mid 30s. So it's still fairly new to me that, you know, I'm not dieting, I'm not hating myself or, you know, any of those things that a lot of kids still deal with today. And I just wanted a story where those are parts of her, but they're really the least interesting things about her. They're just part of who she is. You know, let's talk about tater tot hot dish. Let's talk about my cat. Who cares, you know, like who I'm dating or what I weigh? Like, let's talk about the stuff that matters. So, yeah. 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 So let's talk about tater tot hot dish. (laughs) It plays a very important role in the story. I could totally relate to Cass how, you know, she's going to have her girlfriend over and judge her based on how she reacts Mm -hmm. to one of her favorite meals. Yeah. Can you tell people what tater tot hot dish is? Yes. So, and I think you both have a recipe card, right? So that's part of the pre-order campaign. I don't have one in front of me, but um, it's online if anyone wants to find it. But yeah, so tater tot hot dish was something that when my parents got divorced, my dad needed like, he needed help. He didn't, you know, he made box macaroni and stuff, but he wanted like actual recipes, which in the Midwest means casserole and hot dish, however you want to say it. I don't really have a preference, but Ask people in the Midwest, they'll have beef about hot dish and casserole language, um, but I don't care. Um, but yeah, so tater tot hot dish was one of those recipes that a friend of his gave him to make for us. And it's very basic. It's very Minnesotan. It's basically beef, um, corn or cream style corn, two types of cream soup. So I think it's like cream of celery and cream of chicken soup, salt and pepper to taste because, you know, we have to have our spices in the Midwest. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. So it, it's a very basic recipe. You bake it for an hour. It's delightful. Um, and Cass takes it very seriously. There's a wrong way to make it. And everyone is basically going to hell if they make it the wrong way, in her opinion. Again, I uh, don't feel that strongly. I make it the way my dad makes it, but I I don't care. So I had to make her a little ridiculous in that way. So, yeah. yeah. Well, we're, we're Midwest bonding here because I'm from Illinois originally. Emily's from Ohio originally. Okay. So lots of Midwest nice. action going on here. Are you casserole or hot dish people then? Casserole. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll come to Minnesota. We'll have a conversation. <laughs> Maybe it's a, um, a longitude thing. Yeah, maybe. Or maybe. Yeah, you know, interesting. Yeah. Plot this. Well, I like some of the snark that you had, you know, just kind of funny things like that uh, passive aggressiveness is a love language in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. things like that were just so much fun, really good humor. And then you also had some nice literary nods to mm-hmm. like Joe and Little Women and yep. 
Jane Austen. So mm-hmm. one of the things we'd love to ask you about is who are some of your literary heroes and influences that have helped you become a writer? Yeah. Um, well, I'm obsessed with Jane Austen. If that's not clear by the book, she'll probably make an appearance in everything I write in some way or another. I should actually, I have a mug here. It's backwards, of course, but it says what excellent boiled potatoes. And it's from the 2005 Pride and Prejudice movie. So big fan, big fan. Um, so yeah, I, I love Jane Austen. I like I've been to Bath. I've been to her house in Chawton. Like I just I think she's amazing. Um, and I think I'm trying to remember now. I think the day she died was the day I was born. So, you know, not going to plan anything, but I kind of hope I go out on the day that she was born just to wrap it all up nicely. So if that happens naturally, it you know, <laughs> it'll be fate, but no one will know because I'll be gone. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, I love Jane Austen. I love, um, not really an inspiration, but I just, I love Charles Dickens in college. Like, I think I said something about spontaneous combustion in there. That was just such a Dickens thing. And I had a friend, she's like, that better not leave this book. And I was like, I will fight for it. So it's it's in final (laughs) copy. Um, Just ridiculous shenanigans. But yeah, I would say Jane Austen is probably the biggest, more literary influence or classic influence. And then just a lot of young adult authors like Julie Murphy and Becky Albertalli. They've been very inspirational to me. Um, Yeah, I think those are probably the main ones as far as like getting into young adults specifically. And I did write more literary fiction when I got started, but it just something about it didn't feel right. And I might get back to it, but I love living in young adult for now. That's cool. That was a question um, I was going to ask is about the young adult versus other Mm -hmm genres um mm-hmm. because you've been writing for quite a long time so when did you catch the writing bug i think my first novel was 2012 2013 and it happened because a professor of mine read one of my short stories and he really enjoyed it but he was like this should be a novel like this isn't justified as a short story and i was like okay <laughs> sure why not i'll write a novel then it was terrible, of course, because it's your first novel and it's going to be, but special place in my heart because it was the first, but that was very middle-aged characters, literary fiction set in London, you know, and I'm like 20 years old at the time thinking that's exactly what I want to write. And it's just like, you're not middle-aged yet, so maybe you should go somewhere else with that. And then it kind of slowly gravitated to, you know, people who were 30 to people who were 25 and eventually it got into um, teenagers. And before Out of Character, I wrote this portal fantasy book that it was a lot of fun. I might go back to it one day, but it just wasn't, I don't know, it just didn't feel right. It didn't feel like where I wanted to be at the time. So I went into contemporary and I don't know, something about this book, and I say this all the time, it's like something about it just felt right. I'd never edited a book before or queried a book before. And this was the one for some reason. And here we are. So apparently it was right. So, so exciting. It's been great to watch your journey on social media. You know, it's been really fun. So am I allowed to ask if we're going to see Cass and any of her friends who are now off to college? Are we going to see them again? You're allowed to ask. Um, The answer is I hope so, but I, I haven't begged yet. So we don't know, but (laughs) it, it's something I would like to do. I have a second book in mind, which I kind of have to leave there, but I have a second book with another one of the role play friends as the feature character. Um, 
And then if they really like me and these books sell well, I would like to write the two Tide Wars books that go, or Mm -hmm. I should say for people who don't know, Tide Wars is the fandom that they're role playing. So completely fictional. So if things really go well and they like me, maybe those will happen one day. And I specifically made it a duology just in case because I didn't want to write like seven books or even three. (laughs) I was like, it's going to be a duology. Then I only have to write two. Um, Because I think of, I don't know if you're familiar with Rainbow Rowell, but she has like a fictional world set up. And I think there's like seven books. And I was like, I'm not doing that. I can't possibly. That sounds exhausting. (laughs) So, which I guess is good. I'm not trying to get into fantasy right now because most people would love to write seven books. And I'm like, no, hard pass. Yeah. So listeners, um, what Jen is talking about is there's the the novel that she's written and within it, there are some, usually just a page or two of the mm-hmm. characters actually role-playing. So you get some of the, the sense of the story and the flow and mm-hmm. what it's like to do role-play, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, it really helps you understand. And, you know, I have to say as a parent, you know, there is that, and my kids are, are older now mm-hmm. and they were, they were doing AOL messenger, you know, and yes. so <laughs> I kind of grew up with them learning the safety measures online. And so mm-hmm. there was, when I first started her novel, I was like, oh yeah, she got into trouble gaming and now she's going to get into trouble role-playing and who are these people she's actually playing with, you know? Yep. So it's really interesting to learn along with the story, what it all means. And mm-hmm. I think by putting some of that role-playing in there, those scenes really helped me understand that it's actually this incredibly creative experience and you're writing Mm -hmm. and you're creating a whole world, you know, very similar to what I saw my brother doing with Dungeons and Dragons around the Mm -hmm. table with all of his friends, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you can thank my editor for that because my agent and I both come from role-playing and there was so much we didn't think about because, you know, when you're into something, it's just obvious to you and you don't really think about it. But my editor was like, where are they role playing? What is this site? Can anyone be on it? How do they join? And I was like, why are you bothering me with your questions? They should just know this. But then you fix it because she's right. So <laughs> yeah. some of so us are older fun. than you, Jenna. <laughs> well, I, I know. But then I'm like, I'm writing for the kids. But then also sometimes I feel old. So it's like, I need to be mindful of, you know, people beyond 18 years old. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I thought the parents were handled really well. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes in YA, I've read some where the parents are just kind of, well, I guess they're kind of like the peanuts, you know, they're like, Mm -hmm. you know, type. Yeah. (laughs) I really liked, I enjoyed cool dad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I liked that it was a father daughter relationship was really Mm -hmm. part of it, which is lovely too. You don't always see those. Yeah. Yeah. And usually, I feel like a lot of the time they're kind of the background parent. Like they're still there, the relationship's fine, but they don't really have a role. And I think for Cass too, like that was kind of who he was before the book opened. Like he was kind of a background parent. Um, he was very busy with work. And so when things go the way they do, like he has to step into a bigger, you know, bigger shoes to fill kind of situation. And kind of work that stuff out together. So that was a lot of fun to write them just kind of navigating this new lifestyle together. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it's such a, uh, just a warm, wonderful, beautiful story. I think just the way you handle so many complicated real life issues. Thank you. Yeah. And that senior year of high school, which is really fraught with a lot of things. And when you're starting to individuate from your parents and figure things Mm -hmm. out, you still need their help a lot and you really handle it well. 
Thank you. So I have a question about your writing process. We have Mm -hmm. some writers who listen, and I'm just nosy. Uh, (laughs) What is your writing process like? Like, what are the tools that you use to write, and when and where do you write if you have anything consistent? I know not everybody does. Yeah. Um, So I'm quote-unquote old school. I stick to Word. I don't go into any fancy tools um I just you know I'm comfortable there so I just I open a word doc and get moving um I'm not a great outliner I've gotten a little better over the years after reading some books and trying it out it is very helpful to have some kind of outline even if it's you know just filling out a beat sheet which I don't even know if I wanted to get into what that is but it's essentially a quick guide of you know all the pieces of a book you need to hit and like all the emotions and character arcs and different parts of the story. So I've been using that more. Um, My first draft of Out of Character did not have that. It was just me going in with a half page of notes in Word and just seeing where it went. So it's kind of cool to see the final version from that complete mess of a book. And then I don't really have a schedule like with work and everything else going on, even before like, you know, book deals and everything. I was more of a night owl. I would write more in the evening and then kind of all day on the weekends. So I don't really have a specific schedule. I'm not one of those dedicated 5 a.m. writers. I <laughs> sometimes wake up at 530 randomly and I'm like, you could write. But it's like, no, <laughs> this pillow is really comfortable. So <laughs> I'm not a 5 a.m.er. I, I hope to be someday because my best friend is and she says it's so nice to get it done before work. And then you're not thinking about it after work and you can just unplug. But I haven't mastered that yet. So I'm kind <laughs> of all across the board chaotic. There's no like one way for me, I don't have any great tools or advice as far as like how to do it. I just kind of go in with some ideas and hope for the best and edit a lot later. Well, I was going to say, I think that you, you know, to to let people know that your first draft was not what the final book mm-hmm. ended up being is a really important reminder to people who are writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think a lot of writers are such perfectionists too. And it's so hard to accept that your first draft is not going to be that great because you're just, I think so, I don't remember who, but someone likened it, like you're telling yourself the story the first time and then you're like really bringing it to life after that. And I think that's important to keep in mind is you don't have to have it perfected. You don't even need it half perfected. You just need to have the ideas down. So I think it's helpful to have that mindset as you get started. Yeah, well yeah. said. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of people, they they don't, understand when they start that writing is rewriting mm-hmm. yes um, yeah yeah absolutely well jenna it's been so great to have you on i would like to end with one more question which is okay. a little controversial but okay in your author's note you said that you spend a lot of time making charcuterie boards <laughs> yes. so i wonder how you feel about the butter board which a lot of people are doing now are you are you familiar with the butter board i'm not is it is it what it sounds like or what is it? It's well, let me tell you, and then we <laughs> get your opinion is what you think because I have very mm-hmm. strong opinions about it. People are now taking boards, like you know, mm-hmm. the board you would set all your charcuterie out on, and they're smearing butter on it and then putting things on top of it. And then you like take the thing, the meat or the whatever you put on, and you like grab the butter and you eat it. You wipe it. Yeah, you wipe it and eat it. How do you feel about that? I was like, can you just see me dying inside a little bit the more I stare at you? Um, <laughs> I, I'm i not a huge 
butter person. Like if it's in a recipe, uh, that's totally fine. But I'm not like, oh, I'm making a sandwich. I need butter. So to me, that sounds horrifying. I also, I don't know what this is, if it's some kind of brain thing, but I hate the feeling of butter. Mm. Like if there's a butter knife that I have to wash, I will wipe it off first and then rinse it because I just, it stays. I I don't know if you know what I mean, but like it just doesn't wipe off. And I just can't imagine that on a board of a, you know, what would otherwise be a masterpiece. So yeah, I didn't know I had a strong opinion about this, but now I'm going to write a five paragraph essay about all the problems (laughs) that it has. You're welcome. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight. I'm going to be like, why would anyone do this? Yeah, I feel the same way. And I actually love butter and I still feel that way. I'm like, no, it doesn't, you no. Mm-hmm. Well, that's like cast yeah. with cheese. Like sh- if it's on top dish, it's wrong. But I love cheese. Cass loves cheese. So there's a time and place for butter. It is not on a board. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for contributing to the, what is a very important conversation in my life, yes. I find. Well, I'm glad <laughs> I could have an opinion. <laughs> Definitely the honest wrap up to an interview with the novelist that we've had so far, I think. But it was so important. It was beyond anything else we talked about we needed it (laughs) seriously though we wish you so much success with this book it's really a delight and um you know some of the things you touched on about struggles you had in your own life it's lovely that you have written this book for young people probably a book that all three of us would have liked to read Mm -hmm. when we were teenagers so thanks for that yeah thank you today's episode is sponsored by Shuli Kaywood's story collection, A Small Thing to Want, has won the Independent Publisher Bronze Medal for Short Fiction. Dayton Daily News called it the most exceptional short story collection in quite some time. And BuzzFeed News said the stories are beautifully crafted and dig deep into the realities of family life. Signed copies on sale now at tinyurl.com slash a small thing to want. We talked to Shuli about this short story collection on episode 100. If you want to give that a listen. And all of these links are available in the show notes. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back again with another episode in two weeks. Until then, come chat with us on social media, Goodreads, or email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. If you'd like to help support our podcast, please tell others about us, leave a review wherever you listen, and consider becoming a patron. Even a dollar a month is a big help. Learn more about that on our website, bookcougars.com, where you'll find the show notes for this and all of our past episodes. Thanks, everybody. This episode was edited by Pat Keogh Sound Design.